Our Father, now we're at the time that we've set aside in our worship to listen to your word. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be at work in me and through me and in each one of us. I just happen to be the person whose voice is heard in the room, but I'm I'm just a brother and blessed to be. And I pray that you'd edify me, you'd edify all of us, teach us. We pray that you, God, the Holy Spirit in us, would be our teacher today and help us, Lord, to be encouraged in the things that we hear and then help us to be doers of them and not self-deceived that just because we know things, we're okay. Help us to be doers of the things that we hear. If anyone is listening to my words and listening to all the things that have been said already, and they need salvation through faith in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would work in their hearts, to open their hearts, to receive the truth of Christ, that they might repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Anyone in the room, anyone listening online, receive Christ and be saved by faith, no works, No religion, no show, no hocus pocus. Just believe the truth and be saved. The truth of Christ. Crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, because I love reading scripture to you, let's read the entire passage, even though We are just considering today the tail end of this bit. Let's be refreshed and reminded by reading it. We're starting in verse 8 of Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, 8. And he, that's the Apostle Paul, went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, two years, so that, ready, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jews and Greeks. It's magnificent. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a a Jewish priest, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, And Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, 
overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Amen. So we called this sermon, which is now in three parts, ten evidences of a thriving ministry. Right? And as we've been going through this passage, we've seen the first seven Let me quickly remind you of what they are, and then we'll pick up where we left off and explain the last three today. All right? But listen to this. The first thing we saw in the beginning of the passage was that this whole thriving ministry, and you want to be a thriving ministry, right? I mean, what do you want to be in church? Is it just something you squeeze into your life or, you know, just, just, you know, a thing that you do, you know, check in with God every now? No, you want to be part of what God is doing, right? That's what a church is. A local church is a little chunk, a tiny little chunk of the body of Christ that God uses to spread the gospel and to raise up disciples by preaching and teaching the word of God. And that the the, the working of that manifests itself in a number of ways. Our love for one another, our fellowship with one another, our worship and our service and everything that we do. You want to be part of one that's working right and is part of the work that God is doing, right? You want to be part of a church that's preaching the gospel and part of a church that's making disciples and part of a church where there's life, you know? And that, you know, that comes from the Lord, but that comes from like, it comes through the commitment of the people as well. Yeah? So where did this start? Number one on this list of evidences of a ministry that's truly thriving is it started with a man that God himself had chose. So So really it started with God himself. Because it started with the Apostle Paul. And we know the Apostle Paul was a man that God chose, right? You saw that in Acts chapter 9. That's very clear that the Lord chose Paul for this very purpose to go and to preach the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles. His cho- he even used the words, he's my chosen vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So it started off, number one, evidences of a thriving ministry, started off with a person or persons that God chose himself. Number two, you saw their boldness, right? It says in verse eight, they spoke boldly for three months. They were bold concerning the gospel of Christ. They were bold. We saw that that boldness comes through much time spent with the Lord in prayer, meditating on his word, committed to fellowship and worship, right? Boldness, boldness that is the fruit of much time spent with Jesus. Boldness that is the outworking of love. Love for God and love for people around you who need the gospel. That's number two, boldness. Number three, we saw that they knew what they were about. 
it says they reason, it says that Paul reasoned persuaded concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Right? The point of that is to show you the subject matter that Paul focused on. He didn't just get together with these people in the synagogue and wax eloquent on a variety of topics. You understand that? That's the point of the sentence. The point of the sentence is to show us what Paul talked about. He talked about the kingdom of God. He did not waste time debating the finer points of the oppressions of the Roman Empire. He did not talk about economics or philosophy or you know, read what he says in the opening of 1 Corinthians, you know, to just to confirm how, how devoted Paul was to the gospel. A ministry that's truly thriving knows what it's about and stays focused. The kingdom of God. Number four, they faced opposition. When they were there, it says there were some who were hardened and they didn't believe. That always happens, right? You always, you preach the gospel and it happens sometimes. It happens, seems to happen a lot. People are hard to it. They, they, they disbelieve, they reject. But look what else it says. They spoke evil of the way before the multitude, right? So, so they actually were countermanding and undermining what Paul was doing. They faced direct opposition, right? That is actually an evidence of a thriving ministry, right? That they face opposition, Something is probably wrong if you're being approved of by everybody. If everyone's just happy, there's something that's probably amiss. Look what happened to Jesus. And Jesus actually said, woe to you when men speak well of you. He said that, right? So the opposition that they got was actually an evidence that the Lord was at work. Number five, well, in the face of that opposition, they kept going, right? What did he do? He took the disciples, because some of them had gotten saved, left the synagogue and set up in this thing called the school of Tyrannus, which the word that's translated school is just a word to describe a hall. Tyrannus was a man's name. So in all likelihood, there's a man who had a hall that he rented out for various purposes, right? And so that's what they did. They left the synagogue, rented a hall, and spent two years preaching and teaching the word of God. In the face of opposition, they kept going. That's the mark of a thriving ministry. When things get hard, when things are rough, they keep going for the Lord. Right? So that was one, two, three, four, five. Number six, and number six and number seven, if you recall, were the same thing, but part one and part two. Number six, God was involved. And God's involvement was manifest in the unusual miracles that were done by the hands of Paul with the handkerchiefs, right? Nobody came and took this last week, by the way. No, only kidding. So, so, uh, so people that weren't here last week are like, what has what, what, what this church gotten into? I'm just kidding. Watch last week's sermon, right? You know, I mean, I, I wipe my nose on this. So like, if, if you take this to somebody else, you're going to make them sick. You're not going to make them better. So, so, so the, but the, 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 you focus in on the word unusual, right? I mean, a miracle itself is miraculous. I mean, it's, it's right in the word, right? But this actually says unusual miracles. So it was even more like unusual. I mean, miracles themselves are by definition unusual. But here we get an attitude, it's a, a, an adjective that says it's an un, they're unusual miracles. So like, 
you have to be careful about that. But what, what, what it was a manifestation of was, it's not a command that every church should like take uh, hankies up to their pastor and, and touch him and then go take that's, that's not That's not what it means. It's to show that God was involved. God was with them and God was in what they were doing. That's a very significant mark of a ministry that's truly thriving. God is in them and working in them. And then part two, which is number seven on my list of God being involved, was what, what, is what happened with these seven sons of this Jewish chief priest, Sceva, right? What happened was it looks like a tremendous failure, but it's something that God actually used to continue to be involved with these people, right? Because so these Jewish sons of these chief priests they tried to invoke the name of Jesus because they heard Paul do it. They, they tried to copycat. This is why you don't read the Bible and just copycat what's in it. You have no idea what you're getting involved with. You know, you don't just read about the most sensational and the most miraculous things that happen in the Bible and say, oh, we're supposed to be doing that too. This is why you don't, because that's what these people did. They heard Paul invoking the name of Jesus and seeing demons cast out of people, so they simply said, we're going to do that too. And guess, guess what? The demon in the person noticed. Weird, right? The demon in the person said, yeah, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the demon like overtook the person's body in whom it was inhabited and used the person's body to trash these seven guys. You understand? But what was the result of it? Great fear fell on everyone and it caused the word of the Lord to spread even further. See? Even in that... God was with it and God was in them. So point number six, God was involved part one. Point number seven, God was involved part two. Got it? Now we're ready to press forward. So that, those are your seven so far evidences of a truly thriving ministry. I got three more for you in this passage. So there, here we go. Now we are at verse 18. All of that review took you through the first, sev- the, all the way up through verse 17. Although I got it, I don't know if I made enough of the word magnified. Did I? Maybe I did, but I'm going to again. The, the word of the Lord was magnified. You know, that's a, that means exactly what you think it means. To magnify something means to make it bigger, deeper. Right? You know? The magnification of something means to like blow it up so it's just plain and obvious to everybody around, right? That's what happened. That's what, that, that was God's involvement with them. That's what I want here. Amen. That's what I want in my own life. I hope that's what you want in the church, that the word of the Lord is magnified. There's actually more to say about this because it's what verse 20 says. So we'll get there. But, okay, so here we go. Verse 18. Here's point number eight. Ready? Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. When I read that, my mind kind of went back to uh, the story of John the Baptist. And this is kind of how it all started before Jesus even publicly came on the scene 
It says that John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River and he was preaching to them and warning them and uh, he was there to prepare the way for the Messiah who was about to arrive. And one of the things at one point that he said that the Bible records is he said to a group of them that had come out, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he told them what? To bear fruits worthy of repentance. Right? And so the scripture says concerning the ministry of John the Baptist that many multitudes went out to him at the river and were baptized by him. What? Confess their sins. They're actually confessing their faults. I believe this is a mark of a thriving ministry is that people in humility... See, a thriving ministry is not just one where you're gathering lots of people in. You can skip over the issue of sin. You can skip over the issues of evil in people's lives. You can just kind of leave people alone and let them be comfortable and let them just continue walking in sin and destructive and God-dishonoring behavior And you can build a big crowd that way that would outwardly make it seem like it's thriving. And it's not. It's a whitewashed tomb. A thriving ministry is not necessarily big. But a thriving ministry has in it people who are humble. Humble. There are people who are humbled at the presence of of the holy almighty God. They're like Peter, who when he saw the miracle that Jesus did in causing his nets to be filled with fish when he and pulled it into the boat, what did he say to Jesus? He didn't say, Jesus, praise your holy name. Would you please go fishing with us every day? No, you know what he said? He said to Jesus, depart from me. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He was humble and he confessed his sinfulness to the Lord, right? I think one of the marks of of a ministry where the Lord is really at work is not sinless people because there's no such thing. You know that, right? There's no such thing as people who are sinless. That's why Jesus died because none of us can justify ourselves. That's the grace and the goodness of God. Not that he came to rescue the holy, but he came to rescue the sinful. Not that he came as a physician to examine those who are well, but he came to those who are sick. Not that he came to the righteous, but to sinners and to call them to repentance. That's the glory of the gospel. So the thriving ministry is not made of sinless people. People are sinful but they're humble about their sinfulness and they're gracious and patient with one another. They don't judge one another. They pray for one another. They help one another. And there's this confession of their faults. And this this confession of sin, I think, has two elements, two layers to it, two sides to a single coin, if you want. There is the idea of confessing your sins to other believers. Not in the sense of like the Roman Catholic Church where you go into a booth and you confess to a priest who then gives you a certain set of penances that you're supposed to perform. That's not biblical. That's not right. 
but in the sense that just as brothers and sisters in Christ, we confess our faults to each other because we want some accountability. We want, to, we want it to be that we can help each other. And so there's great humility required on both ends. There's the humility of the confessor. There's the humility of the person confessed to. Because, because every one of us ought to be able to be both at some point in our lives. I have points in my life where I confess to various people at various times as the Lord directs me and leads me and puts it in my heart. Things that are hard for me, if things are struggling. Sometimes I'm specific, sometimes maybe I'm a little more general about it. But look, you battle and you struggle with things and you confess it to people. And you know what? You learn to trust one another and love one another and you pray for one another and you're reminded that you're all together, one, people who need the grace of God. And it's available when we pray, right? So there's that confessing to one another. And then there's, of course, confessing to God. This is one of the beauties, the glories of the gospel is that I don't need a priest to make confession for me. I don't need a sacrament or a religious ceremony, right? I can go, I have access to God. I can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help in time of need. Hallelujah. And we ought to be doing this. It's the mark, I believe, of a truly thriving ministry that people kind of handle their own weaknesses and their own sinfulness that way. James 5.16, well-known verse, says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Right? That's right in that passage that says also what? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We're actually told in that passage to confess our trespasses to one another. That's not a suggestion. That's part of thriving as a Christian. We get it all wrong. We think the mature ones are the ones who like never sin. And there's no such thing. There's no such thing. The mature ones, the mark of maturity in Christianity is humility, love, grace, all the things that God is to us. Christ-likeness, walking as Jesus walked. We ought to be able to build quality, meaningful relationships with each other in the church. Listen, our walk with God ought to be a quality, meaningful relationship. Right? It's not about high church. It's not about religion. It's not about statues and altars and candles and sacraments and rituals. It's not about recited creeds and prayers Christianity is about real, tangible reconciliation to God. We are alienated from God and we are reconciled to Him. His Spirit is in us and His Spirit causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. You know, 
when the Apostle Paul preached in Athens, what did he say to those pagans? He said, God's not far from each one of us. They were pagans. They worshipped statues. And you might say to them, boy, those people are really far from God. He said, God's not far from each one of us. You know, because God is a God that through Christ has made himself available and has invited you to reconciliation and a day-by-day walk relationship with him. And then the out, one of the outworkings of that is we, as fellow temptation and sin strugglers, hello? We form quality relationships with each other that are mature to the point that we can even confess our sins to each other and pray for each other that we may be healed. Unpacking what the word healed means as it's used in that passage is another subject for another day. I don't have enough time to do all that today. But, but the idea that I'm picking out of that verse for now is that we ought to be, have those relationships. You know, First John, what did he say? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are many ways, we said this last, this last Thursday night, right? There's many ways that we can deceive ourselves. The Corinthians deceived themselves into thinking that they were spiritual because some of them were loyal to Paul and some of them were loyal to Peter and some of them were loyal to Apollos. Actually, it was a mark of their immaturity and their carnality. Come on Thursday night and you hear more about that. But they were actually, Paul said, deceiving themselves. The very same James that I just read said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Believers can deceive themselves by falling into thought patterns that aren't biblical. One of them is, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That is said to believers by the Apostle John. And the truth is not in us. And then, immediately on the tail end of that, comes one of the greatest practical promises in the New Testament. If we confess our sins, and and here I believe he means to God. You know, James talked about confessing your sins to one another. Here I believe John is talking about now confessing our sins in prayer to the Lord. Because it speaks of him forgiving us, right? So if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then goes back to the previous thought and says, if we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if we're not confessing our sins, one of two things is true. We're liars because we say we have no sin or we're proud and disobedient and we don't think we need to confess our sins. If we're not confessing our sins to the Lord, then one of those things has to be true. We just don't believe it. Or we think it fits in some clever, mysterious way into some theological scheme that somehow exempts us from practicing it which I hope is not true. This is not the confession of a lost sinner. 
You're not saved. This is not an evangelistic verse. This is not about asking lost, unregenerated people to confess their sins that they might get saved. You don't get saved by confessing your sins. You get saved by believing the gospel when your faith is in Christ. This is a message to Christians. Our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west, and he will remember them no more. We are forever justified. We are forever reconciled to God by his grace through faith in Christ. His promises are rock solid and assured and irrevocable. Praise God for that, right? However, as we walk day by day and we struggle and we battle with temptation and sin, there can be strain in the what? relationship this is why religion is so deadly because religion obscures the relationship and christianity is supposed to be about a relationship between us and our beloved beautiful wonderful heavenly father that he invites us by his grace into and religion obscures that and gives us theologies and and creeds and rules and sacraments and and all sorts of mysterious propped up holy looking things it's not supposed to be that it's in here and it's in here and i and i go and I, i worship the Lord, and I'm reconciled to him. And when I struggle and battle sin, Lord, listen, we're taught it. When Jesus taught us to pray, part of what he taught us to pray was to confess our sins, right? Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus taught us when he taught us to pray, to confess our sins and to forgive others of theirs. Christianity is no place for people who hold judgment over one another. And you know what? If you confess your own sins, you ought to find it a little easier to forgive other people of theirs. Do you get it? In this life, inhabiting these temporary corrupted vessels that we're in, these bodies... The inclination to sin is still there, even though we've been redeemed. Thus Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, these I do. What a wretched man that I am. Yes! It's why we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit, because we can. It's why we're called to not quench the Holy Spirit, because we can. One of the marks of a thriving ministry is that the people confess their sins. They confess their faults. There is humility. There is grace. There's an absence of like personal judgment. Nobody looks down on anybody else. Because, listen, if for one split second God chose to look down on us, we're finished. Remember that. But God doesn't look down on us. He looks upon the sacrifice of his own son. And the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us, credited to us when we believed. That's how the Lord looks at us. Thank God for that. And so our life should be characterized by confessing our faults to one another and confessing our sins to the Lord. We should have strong relationships with each other And we should have a strong relationship with God. It should all be characterized by grace, 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 
grace. Nothing is a worse stinking hypocrisy than Christians who promote the grace of God and exercise none of it in their lives. Titus chapter 2 says that the grace of God is our tutor. The grace of God is a tutor that teaches us how we ought to live. Read it for yourself. In Christianity, a thriving ministry. Look, look what they were, look, listen. Go back, go back. I, I, I haven't mentioned Acts in a little while here now, but go back to Acts and look what they were doing. It says in verse 18, many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. That was the Holy Spirit at work in them. Coming and confessing, because it's a mark of a thriving ministry. You see it right there. Even if you tuned out everything I've said for the last 10 or 15 minutes about this, which I hope you didn't, at least see it on the page. They came confessing their deeds. Christians, be gracious with one another. Be kind, truly, to one another. Christians, be to one another what you want God to be to you. Be to one another what you're counting on God being to you. There's a place for rebuke. There's a place for discipline. But don't, can't you see, isn't it self-evident that in the day-by-day living out of life as a Christian, we ought to be gracious and patient with one another and forgiving one another because we're all, we're all, we're all the same in a sense. God's grace hasn't opened my eyes so I can spot everybody else's sin. God's grace has opened my eyes to my own so that I can be to others an ambassador of that gospel message of grace through faith. Man, there's power in that. That's an evidence of a thriving ministry. People confessing their faults. Now, next, number nine, verse 19. Look at this. Also, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all 50,000 pieces of silver. In the, um, in the, I have the John MacArthur study Bible that I've been reading for years and years. I, no, no need to reinvent the wheel. The, um, the comment on the 50,000 pieces of silver says 50,000 days wages for a common laborer. How much money do you make going to work 50,000 times? That is how much the, because that's someone would work a day for a piece of silver and they'd live on that. They had spent that on satanic garbage. Not only did they confess their faults, but they put the evil deeds out of their lives. In particular, this was idolatry and interacting with spiritual evil 
It says they practiced magic. The idea of practicing magic is witchcraft. Just as I told you and tried to comfort you earlier in this service that there is an invisible realm that's as tangible as what you can see and hear and touch. In that invisible realm, there is also evil, is there not? What did Paul say when he wrote Ephesians and told them to put on the whole armor of God? He said, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. He talked about wrestling with principalities, powers. You know this, right? He talked about wrestling with principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. The, The idea of that is there is wickedness in the unseen realm as well. And through their practice of magic, they were accessing it. And they had books 2,000 years ago. They had books who told them how to do it. And it's all there today. And it's a lot easier to access now. Click, and you're in. You know, my younger folks that are friends of mine, friends of my kids, know more about technology than I do. And they've been talking about, like, the metaverse that's like a big thing now, right? Facebook that we're broadcasting on right now calls itself, like the parent company calls it Meta and behind that is like a, a desire to create basically an entire virtual existence. Can you even begin to imagine what kind of stuff that people could be exposed to in such a place? My wife read me an article about mega churches partnering with social media giants to develop virtual Christianity. May I say to you, that's the last thing that we need. We need. May I say to you, the passage I'm reading to you today has got nothing to do with virtual anything. We're talking about. We're trying to talk about some real thriving Christianity. Aside from what you might experience in the cyber world, there's witchcraft. There's fascination with evil. Symbology, evil forces. People get involved with, you know, you know, the the seemingly innocent things like the tarot card reader at the carnival. Some of the spiritual foundations to the practice of yoga. Some of the, uh, you know, things that are just like seemingly innocent in the in the common everyday lives of people. I'm telling you, man, you got to be careful of what you expose yourself to spiritually. Spirituality and the invisible realm is real and there is one good path in it only. One only. And that is God, Yahweh of Abraham and Isaac and Israel who is approached only through faith in Jesus Christ His Son. We worship Him by reading and studying and meditating on His Word, the Bible. We pray to Him in Jesus' name. We fellowship with one another. That is our spiritual life. And we put on the whole armor of God that we may wrestle with the evil. And without that armor, you're vulnerable. Well, one of the marks of the thriving ministry here was that these people were putting that stuff out of their lives. Right? I'm not saying bring all your stuff here and burn it. In fact, don't. But you know what? Get the stuff out of your life that doesn't belong there. Hey, listen. 
Listen, I'm not talking about some legal... That's legalistic. I'm not being legalistic. You're saved by the grace of God. All right? But once you've been saved, there are some things in your life that shouldn't be there, that are abundant in the world. And just because it looks fun and lots of people in the world do it, and you may think in some external way it seems innocent, there's all kinds of garbage that we should have be putting out of our lives. It goes hand in hand with the previous point. We're humble, we battle, we struggle, we confess our faults to one another, we pray for each other that we may be healed, but then we don't just run back out into all of the, 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 the stuff. That's why they burned the books. They didn't put them in a storage facility. They burned them. They didn't put them aside in case they changed their minds. They burned them. So, so listen to this. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be, putting, be put away from you with all malice. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. Okay, that hits a little closer to home, right? That's not, that's not like witchcraft, but that's evil practice in our own hearts. What did Jesus say? He said, it's not that which enters into a man that defiles a man, but what comes out of him. Because it starts in his heart. That's where this stuff, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, they start in the heart. And they come out. And that's why Paul wrote to believers and said to them, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Famous passage, right? Everybody reads this passage and assumes that it's like teaching about marriage, about why you're not supposed to marry an unbeliever. Okay, I, I think there's application there, but it's not really what it's about. It's not really what he's talking about in that passage, if you read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Right? Which has application to marriage, and many other things. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Listen to the the plain rhetoric that is used here. And what communion has light with darkness? Light being emblematic, light being emblematic of truth and goodness, darkness being emblematic of lies and evil. What communion, that is to share together, what, and then, and what accord or agreement has Christ with Belial? Belial is uh, one of the names that among ancient Jews and even ancient Christians would be used to describe Satan. So in other words, the point is, what accord, what agreement do Christ and Satan have with one another? They don't. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? In other words, really, when you get down to it, what does a believer and an unbeliever, what do they really share? Well, we share some commonalities in the human experience, but spiritually we share nothing. Right? We share the same pre-Christ experience, but once we've come to Christ, the unbeliever needs to come to Christ. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. See, there's the, there's the uh, religion versus relationship thing. 
Christianity is not about gathering in a temple. You are it already. You gather with the temple. You are the temple. It's a relationship with God. It's a walk with God. It's moment by moment, experience by experience, encounter by encounter, hour by hour, day by day, step by step, struggle by struggle, triumph by triumph, joy by joy, sorrow by sorrow, walking moment and moment, arm in arm, hand in hand, hearts intertwined with God himself. That's the blessing of Christianity, reconciliation to God. You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, now listen to this. I will dwell in them and will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. That's what was going on there in Ephesus. They were taking the unclean which they, the, the, the wicked spiritual stuff that they were part of, and they were bringing it and burning it. They didn't want to touch it anymore because they had been promised by the living God that he would be their God and walk among them. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! I'll be a father to you. We just read over those words and it's like it conjures up what? Some doctrinal thing or some theological thing? I love doctrine. Good doctrine is very important. Theology is wonderful. But sometimes we just relegate to thought things that we don't think about, which is a weird way to say it. But I think it's true. We relegate to like some academic principle, something that we're supposed to experience. Amen? He, God says, I will be a father to you. Hallelujah. God says he'll be a father to us. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. Says Yahweh Almighty. And then you know what conclusion he draws? Paul does. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, ready, let us cleanse ourselves. From all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In other words, having the promise of God that he will be our father and dwell among us, let's cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Two sides of the same coin, right? Cleanse yourself of those wicked things that don't belong there other side of the coin, confess your faults to one another, receive other people, and be gracious and patient with them. Both. Both. Do you understand? So I want to go to work directed by God, removing from my life the wickedness and the things that don't belong there. But as I'm doing it, I'm not going to run around judging everybody else. I'm going to be patient with everybody else and gracious. You know what you've got? If you've got people that are like that, that that they eagerly, earnestly are desiring to get the wickedness out of their own lives, but they're exercising grace and patience towards others, you know what you got there? You have a Christian. You have someone who you have someone who knows God and how he lives is being affected and directed by his knowledge of God. And if you have a whole group of them, you have a thriving ministry. That's the ninth mark of the thriving ministry. Last, finally, verse 20. 
I know there's more I can say about verse 19, and I even have more material here, but I, I don't want to shortchange verse 20. Maybe I'll come back to some of the other stuff someday. Verse 20, another mark of a thriving ministry, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. At the end, that's always the way you know, the way you know that a ministry is truly thriving. You don't have to, look, you don't have to sift through a whole bunch of nonsense to find the word of God. One of the ways you know that a ministry is truly thriving is the word of God is front and center at all times. All times. It's what they're about. Go back to the beginning of the passage. They reason concerning the kingdom of God. That's how you know a ministry is thriving. Front and center is we want to hear from God. I've heard it already. Tell me again. Because you don't know everything. Raise your hand if you know everything. Good, good, good. Good, I'm glad. Man, you were in trouble if you raised your hand. You were, in, you, were in, you, were in, you were in some trouble. Of course, I raised my own, but that, but that wasn't because I think I know. That was just, I was just being a humble example. See, we can always learn from God's word. I learn new stuff when I read and study and listen to preachers and study and prepare sermons. We're learning. And, and sometimes I remind myself of things that I forget. Sometimes I'm just refreshed in things that it's like, yeah, you know what? That's awesome. Look, the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. The idea of the word of God growing is that the gospel was just spreading everywhere. And the idea of it prevailing was that it was conquering people. I want the word of God to conquer me. I want the word of God to work in me. Bring me to truth. Affect my life. Govern my faith with God and my relationship with others. Ten marks of a thriving ministry. Number one, it started with God choosing for himself his servant. Number two, they were bold, bold with the gospel. That came from prayer, much time with the Lord. Number three, they spoke and reasoned and persuading concerning the kingdom of God. They knew what they were about. They didn't waste time with a bunch of other stuff. Kingdom business. Number four, they faced opposition. That's a mark of a thriving ministry. They were preaching the truth and it stirred up the enemy. Right? Number five, in the face of that opposition, they kept going. They kept going. Right? Number six, God was involved. Number seven, God was involved. Number eight, the believers confessed their evil to one another and to the Lord. Number nine, there was this specific repudiation and removal of evil from their lives. And number ten, the word of the Lord grew and prevailed. There are many other things that are marks of a thriving ministry that aren't necessarily specifically enumerated in this passage of Scripture, but those ten are. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? There's only one thing that a real Christian would want to do and just say amen to it all and say, Lord, Lord, work in me and work in us that in this day and age and in this place and this society that we live, that we would be a thriving ministry. Not what it looks like to the world, but what it looks like to you, Almighty Lord. Work in us. Raise up humble, true, humble, committed believers 
People who love your word. People who want to learn from your word and be directed by your word. Raise them up. Start with me. Start with us. I think for time's sake I'm going to leave it there. Well, I'm not going to sing the last hymn today. A number of my singers had to leave early anyway, so that works out. But um, let's bow before the Lord and pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, so much for this time that we've had together today. Thank you for the example and the teaching that you give us in your word. Help us, Lord, to be corrected by it if need be. Help us to be encouraged by it, certainly edified and built up. And help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. Lord, I think you can see and I think everyone who's watched and listened can see I'm not presenting here a list of things that people need to do in order to be saved. This is about people who have been saved by your grace. But Lord, if there's anyone watching or listening to this who has issues concerning their own salvation, may they please see that there isn't salvation in any other Just in the Lord Jesus, the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. We pray, Lord God, that everyone listening to this would recognize that their salvation can be in Jesus only. That you, Lord Jesus, gave your life for our sins, were buried, and then you rose from the dead. So, So the righteous requirement of the law was satisfied in your death. Death and its power have been destroyed. And those who are yours through faith in Christ will never die. We walk in humble reconciliation now and look forward to an eternal future, even with a new body in your kingdom. May someone please come to faith in Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time together today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.